Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my work at legendaryupside.com, and that includes the column that you're about to hear, the week six walkthrough. This is the big article that I put out each week on legendaryupside.com. You can check out a free preview of the article each week for free. Uh, You can get that email to you if you sign up for free uh, for the newsletter. You can also listen to it here on this podcast feed uh, each week for free, the preview that is. If you want to listen to the entire thing, you got to sign up at legendaryupside.com for a premium membership. That's only $10 a month or $99 for the year. But if you sign up for the yearly membership, you can also sign up to get a $50 underdog credit as well. Details for that on the site. Um, You can also obviously read the entire article uh, that's reserved for premium subscribers as well. I also this week in the article include a spreadsheet with the pass rate over expected numbers for all 32 teams. Uh, The expected pass rates, the actual pass rates, the pass rates over expected, and the pass rates on first and 10, which I reference a lot in these articles. Um, And so if you're a subscriber, you can get access to that spreadsheet as well if you want to poke around and check out those numbers. But let's go ahead and get to the free preview of the week six walkthrough. The title of the post is week six walkthrough, Josh Jacobs revival. Welcome to the week six walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this sixth glorious week of football. At the bottom of the post, I've included a link to a spreadsheet with the pass rate over expected numbers for all 32 teams. The stats below are from PFF, NFL Fastar, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. The first game is Ravens at Titans, which is at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. This is a London game. The Ravens' implied team total is 22.5. Lamar Jackson is coming off a rough loss to the Steelers, in which he didn't get a ton of help from his receivers. But Jackson's play was still concerning. He posted minus 12.5 EPA, which was quarterback 28, and a 42% success rate, which was quarterback 22. Then I've got uh, an EPA per game chart. This is just from week five. Uh, This chart shows Lamar Jackson down near Jordan Love, down near Dak Prescott in a very poor game, actually below Zach Wilson, uh, below where Russell Wilson was last week in a poor game. So Jackson last week did not play well. He's in the part of the chart um, where you would expect maybe some positive regression based on his success rate versus the efficiency that he posted, but he's definitely in the underperforming group from week five. Jackson now has to travel to London, but when he gets there, he'll be facing a Titans pass defense that offers strong bounce back potential. In addition to being weak against the pass in general, the Titans don't blitz at a high rate. Then I have the passing matchup chart showing that the Titans are just 27th in blitz rate. They've been successful when blitzing, but they don't do it a lot. Uh, Lamar Jackson has been blitzed at a very high rate this year. Jackson has been blitzed heavily this season, and it hasn't gone well. The Ravens rank 32nd in EPA on blitz dropbacks, but he now moves from an aggressive Steelers defense to a more laid-back Titans squad. Jackson is also a candidate for positive regression. He's quarterback 5 in success rate, but only quarterback 20 in EPA per game. Then I have the EPA per game chart for the entire season. The first one was just for week five. This one's for the entire season. And Jackson is similar to Jimmy Garoppolo, Trevor Lawrence, and Geno Smith, in that these guys have been decently consistent 
but they are not performing all that efficiently. So these, I would say, are probably the four biggest candidates for positive regression. If they keep posting success rates similar to what they have so far this season, we should see some more big plays, fewer negative plays, uh, once we get a bigger sample size on these guys. If Jackson has more time to throw this week, his EPA should positively regress, particularly if his receivers do a better job hauling in his passes after some serious drops issues last week. Zay Flowers was one of the main drop culprits against the Steelers, but his overall profile is looking strong. Flowers has run every route for the Ravens for three straight weeks, earning 10 targets in two of three games. He's the clear number one wide receiver, and his receiving profile looks even more impressive than Mark Andrews. The next chart shows yards per route run on the x-axis and Whopper, which combines target share and air yard share on the y-axis. Um, and the best place to be in this chart is in the very top right, which is where Tyreek Hill is. Uh, Tyreek Hill has been insanely efficient on his routes. He's also getting a huge share of the Dolphins offense. Zay Flowers is kind of in like a jumble of guys who haven't been all that efficient. Uh, he's got a yards per route run below two, although he's, he's been solid. But he's getting a big chunk of the Ravens' offense. So he's near Michael Pittman. He's near Adam Thielen. He's near Jacoby Myers. Um, he's below Chris Olave, but similar efficiency. So, you know, not like the best roles, but, you know, guys who are definitely getting a lot of volume. So impressive for Zay Flowers. Mark Andrews is down by Christian Kirk, Devontae Smith, Um He's, he's been less efficient than Debo Samuel, but a, a similar share of the offense. So, you know, fourth tight end, that's good. But normally, Mark Andrews is getting a much bigger share of the Ravens' offense. With the Ravens likely to be more functional this week, Flowers is a strong flex play, while Rashad Bateman and Odell Beckham look like risky dart throw options. Mark Andrews' receiving profile is disappointing for his standards, but it's still very strong for a tight end. With a 24% target share and a 19% air yard share, his 0.49 whopper is elite for the position. This week sets up well for a breakout performance. Then I have Mark Andrews' uh, chart showing his stats and percentiles. And his target share of 24% is very good, 98th percentile for a tight end. His whopper is 95th percentile for a tight end. So overall, his profile is a lot of green. He looks great. For a tight end, this is a very strong profile. For Mark Andrews, it's not as strong as we're used to. However, the Ravens should not be considered a lock for high passing volume in this matchup. The Titans were shaping up as a pass funnel again this season after being a huge pass funnel last year. But that was before the Colts ran all over them. And even entering last week, the Titans were looking a bit shaky on the ground. I noted last week that the Colts were unlikely to be concerned about running the ball against a Tennessee defense that ranked just 16th in run-stop win rate. They're now down to 23rd. Then I've got the rushing matchup here. And as I just noted, the Titans, their run-stop win rate, which is an ESPN player tracking metric, uh, is actually quite poor now. So they don't look very fearsome against the run. The Ravens are, are a solid rushing offense. The Ravens are unlikely to fear a Titans run defense that was living on reputation early in the season and whose reputation is suddenly tarnished. Although the Ravens aren't nearly as run-heavy as they were for most of Greg Roman's tenure, they are happy to run the ball from ahead. If they control this game, we could see a fairly conservative game plan. Then I've got a chart here showing 
uh, I'll reference this throughout, it's the expected pass rate on the y-axis and then actual pass rate on the x-axis creates four quadrants. And in the bottom left quadrant, you've got teams that are dictating the run. These are teams that have fairly low expected pass rates, a lot of neutral or positive game script. And then they're also not passing all that much. So the 49ers are kind of the quintessential team here that are dictating the run this year. But the Ravens are near the Browns, the Cowboys, the Saints, the Buccaneers, um, and teams that are kind of establishing it in scripts that allow them to do that. That's good news for Lamar Jackson's rushing upside and also puts Ravens running backs on the radar. Justice Hill returned to the lineup last week and operated as the secondary back to Gus Edwards. But as Dwayne McFarland notes, Hill looks to have a meaningful lead in the passing game. Quote, Gus Edwards continued to lead the team with 55% of rushing attempts, but Hill took over most of that long down and distance and two-minute work. Hill looks like a fill-in start, as a bet that the Titans can push the Ravens into a pass-heavy script. Then I've got Justice Hill's chart here uh, showing his efficiency and usage. Not a lot of either. Uh, his elusive rating is 90, which ranks RB12. But otherwise, it's just kind of a, a bet that he, he's out there a lot. Edwards also looks like a fill-in start with a touchdown or bust profile. Then I've got Edwards' profile. He's been a little bit better of a rusher, RB24 in rush yards over expected per game, RB15 in success rate, RB24 in breakaway yards per game. So he's flashing a little bit as a rusher, but he's a total zero. As a receiver, he has a 1% target share. Moving to the Titans, who have an implied team total of 18.5. Consistency has been a major problem for Ryan Tannehill this season. He's an unimpressive quarterback 22 in EPA per game, but a highly concerning quarterback 32 in success rate. Only Zach Wilson and Kenny Pickett have been less reliable. Then I've got the EPA per game chart for the season. Kenny Pickett and Zach Wilson are really in their own tier in terms of incompetence this season. So, you know... I don't want you to think that they're all kind of next to each other here. Tannehill is in a sort of different part of the chart than Pickett or Wilson, but still his success rate is worse than Mac Jones and Daniel Jones, uh, Bryce Young's. So he has been quite inconsistent this season. In EPA per game, he's um, kind of in the mix with a bunch of guys. He doesn't look that bad in his actual efficiency. Tannehill now faces a Ravens defense that is beginning to look elite against the pass. The Ravens are second in EPA allowed per dropback, second in dropback success rate, first in PFF's coverage grades, and 13th in pass rush win rate. They are well-rounded and formidable. Then I've got a chart here showing the passing matchup. The Titans don't look that bad as a passing offense. They look like below average but not horrendous, but the Ravens really do pop as a, a passing defense. Their pass rush isn't great, but you know they're, they're playing amazing in coverage, and that's leading to really strong numbers uh, in the actual results. Sure, the Ravens' pass defense looks inflated from having faced Dorian Thompson-Robinson in Week 4, but while their pass rush is an elite, it at least looks to be for real. ESPN's pass rush win rate metric uses player tracking data to track win rate within 2.5 seconds. The Ravens rank 13th in that metric and 14th in quick pressure rate. So regardless of the opposing quarterback, the Ravens have shown the potential to generate quick pressure that matches their actual results. 
The Ravens also maintained their number one ranking in coverage grade last week and looked legitimately stifling in the secondary. The Ravens create major downside risk for Tannehill, who cratered against the Saints in Week 1 and the Browns in Week 3. Then I have Ryan Tannehill's uh, percentiles in EPA per play, success rate, and CPOE by week. It's pretty startling how bad he was in both Week 1 and Week 3. He's been pretty solid outside of those games, but when it's gotten bad for Tannehill this season, it's gotten really bad. With Tannehill's efficiency in serious question, DeAndre Hopkins looks like the only appealing option in the passing game. Chigakonkwo saw eight targets against the Colts, but with 65% route participation, he continues to be a part-time player, and this game could be low volume if the Ravens play things run heavy on the other side. And Okonkwo doesn't have the type of profile you want to target in an uncertain environment. Then I've got his stats and uh, efficiency here. First read target rate I've, I've highlighted. He's only at 12% there. 18% targets per outrun isn't terrible, but not ideal for someone with a 69% route participation. And then his yards per route run is quite poor this year at 0.90. But Hopkins is getting peppered with targets. He has an elite 23% first read target rate and a 29% targets per route run. Even if this game ends up being a dud, Hopkins should get plenty of opportunities. He profiles as a solid flex option. Then I have Hopkins stats. His first read target rate is 23%, which is an elite rate. His target per route run is 29%, which is also elite. And he has an elite 2.54 yards per route run. And the Titans could be forced to attack through the air because the ground game could be a slog. The Ravens are strong against the run across the board. And I've got the Ravens uh, run defense and the Titans rushing offense. The Ravens are eighth in run stop win rate. And that's the worst uh, that they are in any of the metrics. They're sixth in EPA allowed per rush, seventh in rushing success rate, and seventh in PFF's rushing grades. This makes Derrick Henry a legitimately risky play, coming off a game where he saw less than 70% of team attempts for the first time this season. Then I've got his game log, and his rushing attempt share was down to 62% last week, snap share of 59%. His rushing attempt share to start the season was 79%, 74%, 73%, 73%. So dropping down to 62% is definitely uh, something to take note of. Henry has been a good runner this season. His 45% success rate is especially promising and indicates he's still capable of carrying the load if the Titans build their game plan around him. Then I've got his stats here. Not a very impressive uh, receiver in terms of his usage, but is Still very good in yards per out run at 1.87. That's RB4. Um, not particularly explosive as a rusher these days, but that success rate of RB of uh, 45% ranks running back 10. However, the issue is that Ty J Spears has been very strong as well. He ranks running back three in rush yards over expected per attempt, and his 50% success rate is even stronger than Henry's. Then I've got Tajay Spears' profile. The funny thing is that he has actually not been all that efficient as a receiver with a yards per out run of just 0.77, which ranks running back 30, but he's getting a lot more usage as a receiver, and then he's been really good as a rusher. Um, his breakaway yards per game are a little lower than Henry's, but still solid, and he's crushing the other rushing efficiency metrics. Spears looks like a solid favorite to see a 50% snap share for the fourth consecutive week. Henry looks like a low-end running back, too, in this matchup, with Spears looking like a viable fill-in. 
The next game is the Vikings at Bears at 1 p.m. Vikings implied team total 23.25. With Justin Jefferson headed to injured reserve, we could see a very different Vikings offense this week. It sounds like K.J. Osborne may take over some of Jefferson's routes, but obviously he can't come close to filling Jefferson's shoes, and the offense will likely shift play calling to feature T.J. Hawkinson and Jordan Addison more prominently. But the Vikings are also likely to pass less frequently when they can get away with it. Minnesota has a 72% pass rate, the second highest in the NFL, but they're largely passing in scripts that demand it. Then I've got this chart that shows expected pass rate and pass rate. Uh, The upper right-hand quadrant is teams that are expected to pass a lot and are passing a lot. The Vikings have kind of led the charge for two years now as a team that is passing a ton, but finds themselves constantly in scripts where they need to pass. So they are kind of living up to what the games ask of them, but they aren't like the Chiefs where they're dictating pass-heavy scripts to their opponents. As I noted heading into week four, the Vikings were more conservative when playing weaker opponents in 2022. And against the Panthers, they took their foot off the gas, running just 52% of the time in a script that allowed for a run-first game plan. Then I've got the expected pass rate by week for the Vikings. Week four here is the important one where they were finally in a script that didn't call for a ton of passing and they actually were run first. The Bears have had two strong weeks, but they're still far from a powerhouse offense. Minnesota will likely want to test Chicago's run defense with the engine of the Vikings passing attack on injured reserve. Then I've got the rushing matchup. And yeah, the Bears, they're actually second in run stop win rate but um, overall not particularly strong in terms of the results against the run this year. The Bears aren't as disastrous against the run as they were last year, but they're still beatable on the ground, and the Vikings have been run blocking very well this season. In the chart above, they rank fifth in run block win rate. The issue is that the Vikings' backfield continues to underperform. Alexander Madison ranks just running back 31 in rush yards over expected per attempt and RB34 in success rate. And I've got Madison's chart here. He's just been very underwhelming. And Madison has been far more impressive than Cam Akers. Then I have Akers' chart, and he's been, like, extremely bad. Uh, Yards per hour of 0.93 is actually not horrendous and better than Madison, who's at 0.69. But Akers is still stealing valuable work from Madison, which is work Madison can't really afford to give up. Against the Chiefs, Akers handled 29% of attempts, which helps explain why Madison saw just eight carries. Akers has also tied Madison with four targets over the past two weeks. So while we can expect the Vikings to dial up their backfield volume, Madison still looks like a low-end RB2 play. With the backfield really struggling, the Vikings could be better off if the Bears push them into a more aggressive script, even without Jefferson. The Bears rank just 31st in EPA allowed per dropback, and they are struggling with their pass rush and in coverage. Then I've got the passing matchup here. The Vikings look strong across the board, although, of course, those numbers produced with Jefferson, and the Bears are a very weak pass defense. Kirk Cousins won't be the same without Jefferson, but he should be able to play fairly efficiently in this matchup. Cousins has been solid this season, ranking quarterback 13 in EPA per play and QB 15 in success rate. If he can stay in that ballpark in a great matchup, there should be production in this passing offense. Then I've got the EPA per game chart for Kirk Cousins. 
And he's kind of in a jumble of guys who've been solid in terms of their consistency, solid in terms of their efficiency. Uh, he probably won't be very good long-term without Jefferson, but Cousins has played pretty well this year. With passing volume potentially ticking down a notch, TJ Hawkinson's usual role in the offense is less appealing. But Hawkinson's role in the offense could shift. The tight end has been soaking up underneath coverage on largely shallow routes. But to his credit, Hawkinson still has earned a 17% first read target rate and a 22% targets per route run. Then I've got his profile highlighting those two numbers, which are both very good for a tight end. And also the fact that he's got a 30% double coverage rate, which is very high for a tight end. That's in the 95th percentile. And he's got a very shallow ADOT of 6.4. This role likely reflects how Hawkinson fits best in a Justin Jefferson offense, rather than what his role would look like if Kevin O'Connell was starting from scratch. Before 2023, Hawkinson had never had an ADOT below 7.5. He's likely to start attacking downfield more often and has the potential to turn in an elite tight end week as the Vikings search for a new top target. Jordan Addison leads Osborne 13% to 9% in first read target rate and 16% to 12% in targets per route run. Osborne is likely to see more targets without Jefferson, but Addison was already a higher priority when on the field and is now set to be on the field nearly as often. Then I've got a comparison between Osborne and Addison. You really see that while Addison hasn't been amazing in terms of uh, his target earning potential per route, he's been quite a bit more impressive than KJ Osborne, and the route gap should close a bit going forward. Moving to the Bears, who have an implied team total of 20.75. Justin Jefferson is coming off a very strong 17.5 EPA performance against the Commanders. It was the second highest total of his career, topped only in week 9 of 2022, when he threw for three touchdowns and rushed for 178 yards and a touchdown. Fields has strung together two very strong performances, recovering from a very concerning start. Then I've got Justin Fields' percentiles by week, and you can see that he was horrendous, like in everything, to start the season. He had a 38% success rate in week 1, which is bad, but was also quite a bit better than he was in week 2 or 3 when he was down to like the 11th, 13th percentile in success rate, really bad, below 20th percentile in EPA per play, all three weeks to start the year. But since then, he's jumped up a lot. Uh, 38th percentile in success rate, last week not ideal, but 88th percentile in EPA per play. And in week four, he was in the 80th percentile in success rate and the 69th percentile in EPA per play. However, field success rate wasn't great last week. In fact, it matched his week one consistency. His week five performance doesn't look particularly sustainable. And given that it was driven by a massive DJ Moore blowup game, that checks out intuitively. But when looking at field's two-week stretch, it doesn't jump out as being unsustainable. Sure, he's due for a little negative regression, but if he keeps playing like this, it's going to lead to more good things. Then I've got the EPA per game chart from just weeks four and five, and yeah, he's above where you would expect uh, in terms of his efficiency compared to his consistency. His success rate would normally have him be playing more like Jared Goff has played over the past couple weeks. Um, but he's not like wildly above expectations. Trevor Lawrence and Patrick Mahomes are just below him on this chart. Now, is he going to keep playing like Trevor Lawrence and Patrick Mahomes? That's the question. But if he does keep this consistency up, then his efficiency doesn't look crazy. But which version of Fields is the real deal? 
Is he the decisive big play passer from weeks four through five, or closer to the guy we've seen over the course of the season? Then I've got the season-long EPA per game chart, and on this, Fields looks much less impressive. He's near Sam Howell and Josh Dobbs. Against the Vikings, Fields is going to have to contend with the Blitz, which he hasn't had to deal with much in his two-game resurgence. Over the last two weeks, Fields has been blitzed on 32% of his dropbacks, which is a middle-of-the-road rate, but he now gets a Vikings defense that is blitzing on an NFL-leading 61% of dropbacks. Brian Flores just blitzed Patrick Mahomes on 57% of dropbacks. He's going to bring the heat against Justin Fields. This creates serious downside risk for the Bears, given that Fields has been very poor against the Blitz this season. Then I've got the the matchup chart showing both the passing and rushing games. And yeah, I would say what's interesting is that the Vikings aren't particularly good when blitzing. They're only 27th on um, blitzed dropbacks in terms of EPA per dropback. But they blitz a ton. They lead the NFL in blitz rate. And then the Bears are getting blitz a lot and are not good when blitz. So I guess it'll be a question of how good this Vikings defense can be on the blitz against an offense that is pretty susceptible to it. Um, Overall, the Vikings defense doesn't look great. Um, Their pass rush uh, in particular looks a little weak. And if the Bears attempt to pivot to the run here to cool off the Vikings defense, is unlikely to generate a lot of efficiency. The Vikings have been strong against the run and rank fifth in run-stop win rate. They appear legitimately good at shutting down the ground game. The Bears will also be without Khalil Herbert, who is expected to miss multiple weeks with a high ankle sprain. Provided he clears the concussion protocol, Roshan Johnson now looks set to take over the Bears' backfield. But Johnson looks more like a touch consolidator than a real-life playmaker at the moment. He's shown a little juice in the passing game, but he's unlikely to be efficient enough for the Bears to rely on him to hide a struggling quarterback. Then I've got Johnson's stats here. He's running back 23 in success rate. Not bad, not great. Running back 27 in rush yards over expected per game. Running back 29 in rush yards over expected per attempt. Running back 30 in breakaway yards per game. So the explosiveness element here, not impressive. And then he's running back 18 in yards per outrun, running back nine in targets per outrun. So in terms of target earning ability, to the extent that we can really say running backs earn targets, uh, pretty good. And then he's efficient as a receiver this season, although not like lights out. To move the ball effectively, the Bears need Fields to continue playing at a high level against a defense that looks well positioned to foil him. Given Fields' rushing ability, he remains a quarterback one, but this looks like a shaky spot for Bears pass catchers. Fortunately, DJ Moore and Cole Komet have consolidated targets over the last two weeks. Against the Commanders, Moore was robbed of a long touchdown by a phantom out-of-bounds step and still posted an 8-reception, 230-yard, 3-touchdown receiving line on 10 targets. He's emerged as a true number one wide receiver. But the thing about Moore is that he's dominating as a deep threat. His 15.1 ADOT is very deep and has helped lead to a wildly spicy 15.6 yards per target. Moore should have more big games in his future, but starting him still comes with a low floor. I'd be looking to get more into lineups, but with the understanding that he's a boom-bust play. The boom is just too good to miss out on. Then I've got his stats, target share of 25%, air yard share of 43%. The air yard share is elite, the target share is good. And then the 8 out of 15.1 is really deep, especially for a number one option. Cole Komet is actually seeing targets at a higher rate, 
with a 22% targets per route run to Moore's 19%. The tight end runs fewer routes than the wide receiver, but the end result is a target share that only slightly trails Moore's. Then I've got Cole Komet here, and he's got a 22% target share to Moore's 25%. His air yard share, much, much lower though, 17%. Targets per route run of 22%, which is pretty good for a tight end. His dot much shallower at 6.9. This looks like a bit of a letdown spot for the Bears offense, but Komet's 6.9 ADOT could make him an outlet option if the Vikings are able to pressure fields with the Blitz. Komet profiles as a low-end tight end one. The next game is the Panthers at Dolphins. Panthers implied team total, 17.5. The Panthers are telling anyone who will listen that they are all in on Bryce Young. But in fantasy land, we've already started to face the reality that Young does not look like a difference maker, for this season at least. Still, it was nice to see Young post some efficiency against the Lions, finishing quarterback 15 in EPA and quarterback 11 in success rate. To be clear, I am fully aware that these numbers inflate how good of a game Young had. He was able to redeem his statistical day in garbage time. But hey, we play a statistical game. On the one hand, understanding Young's real-world skill level is critical to gauging the fantasy outlook for him and his weapons, and that skill level remains in question. But on the other, it's nice to see that he can generate some efficiency by using garbage time to pose as a competent NFL quarterback. Then I have the EPA per game chart showing that Bryce Young was near Jared Goff, Gardner Minshew, a little bit above Jimmy Garoppolo, near Tyrod Taylor and Joe Burrow. So it wasn't like amazing last week, but you know, you would definitely take this if it were real. Even better, Young was dialed in on a clear number one option. Adam Thielen posted a 39% target share against the Lions, going 11 for 107 and 1 on 13 targets. It was his fourth straight game with a 25% plus target share. Thielen is looking like one of my bigger misses this offseason. But to zoom out for a minute, Thielen is the type of fantasy draft L that I'm striving to take. Every situation in the NFL is unique, but we're never going to be 100% correct when analyzing each of them. We don't have perfect information on each situation, and we'd still get things wrong even if we did. To some extent, we have to lean on broader archetypes and make bets that reflect a range of outcomes approach. In other words, we're going to miss. So it really comes down to how we'd like that to go. I want my misses to look like Thielen. The process that kept me off Thielen also led to hard fades on players like Najee Harris, Dalvin Cook, Alan Lazard, and Juju Smith-Schuster reasonably expensive volume-based plays whose ADPs were indefensible from a forward-looking, talent-based perspective. Thielen is also a desirable early-season L because his production looks pretty shaky from a long-term 2023 perspective. I can't put it any better than Ben Gretsch did. Then I've got a quote here from Ben Gretsch in this week's Stealing Signals. Pretty much all game, Adam Thielen, 13, 11, 107, and 1, just sat underneath the zone and picked up short targets, eventually totaling just 86 air yards on his 13 looks. He scored within two minutes remaining in the game to cut a 25-point deficit to 18, so in garbage time. Four of his catches came on that final drive. He's a really easy sell high if you have him. With any sell high, there's an element where it's possible what he's doing continues in the short term, but his production is the product of a non-functional part of their offense where on a longer timeline, they have to get Bryce Young doing more to get the ball downfield. They've already publicly announced that they are in the market for a legit number one wide receiver who can help with that, so it's not just dump-offs to Thielen all year. 
Holding Thielen and hoping for this production to continue is betting into a role that the team has openly discussed wanting to replace. End quote. I might have to choke down another serving of Crow this week, though. Miami's pass defense is built to force offenses to matriculate the ball downfield with underneath throws while limiting explosive plays. The Dolphins know they aren't going to stop every pass. Sometimes they're going to miss, and they're built for those misses to look like Adam Thielen. Then I've got the passing matchup. The Dolphins have a very good pass rush, and they are limiting explosive plays, but they're only 30th in dropback success rate. Combating an intense Dolphins pass rush, Bryce Young will be looking to get the ball out quickly. Quick passes to Thielen aren't likely to lead to a lot of overall scoring for the Panthers' offense, but they should lead to another strong PPR day for the slot receiver. Then I have Adam Thielen's profile here. First three targets per route remain kind of mediocre at 16%, but a pretty good targets per route run of 22%. He's playing 72% of his snaps from the slot, so he's fully transitioned to the slot uh, with the Panthers, and he's got a 7.7 ADOT, so pretty good fit for a matchup where they're probably going to be throwing underneath a lot. The Dolphins also allow opposing offenses to run on them with decent success, but Miles Sanders isn't getting enough of the workload to trust him in lineups. After seeing just a 46% carry share in Week 4, Sanders dropped to 33% against the Lions. Then I've got Miles Sanders' game log here. He also dropped to 46% in Week 4, but then 33% of attempts in Week 5, continuing that downward trend. This is health-related, which I'll get to. Chuba Hubbard isn't taking over the backfield right now. Sanders isn't fully healthy, and the Panthers are managing his reps in negative game scripts. But with the Panthers as 13.5-point road underdogs, we can expect plenty of negative game script again this week. And Sanders does not look like a good efficiency bet. He's a fill-in, pray-for-a-touchdown bet. Then I have Sanders' profile here, and his yards per route run is actually the best thing he's got going efficiency-wise. Uh, at 0.76, it's higher than last year, but he's RB31 there. His rushing efficiency has been really, really bad, led by, um, or, you know, led in a bad way by a success rate that's only 23%. That's RB49. Moving to the Dolphins, who have an applied team total of 31. Mike McDaniel is doing the impossible. He's making nerds fall in love with the run game. This article covers 12 to 16 games every week, so I fall back on some broad frameworks, one of which is that passing is more efficient than running. But I do acknowledge that running the ball has its place. And if you have to mix in the run game as part of a one-two punch, you might as well make it an extremely explosive wallop. The Dolphins have hit an unreal 50 15-yard-plus passes. The next highest total is just 36 by the Vikings. But the Dolphins also have an NFL-leading 13 15-plus yard runs. Of course, Devon Achan has been a big part of this success. The star rookie has contributed seven of these gains on just 38 attempts, but is now on IR until after Miami's Week 10 bye, so the Miami run game will be less explosive this week at baseline. But as thrilling as Achan has been, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Mostert has had an impressive and explosive season as well. Mostert has hit five 15-plus yard runs, tied for running back five with Christian McCaffrey and Derrick Henry. Mostert also ranks running back seven in rush yards over expected per attempt and running back seven in breakaway yards per game, and he's been impressively consistent, ranking running back nine in success rate. 
Then I've got Mostert's chart here. He looks really good in all the rushing efficiency metrics, and he's been solid with a 1.24 yards per route run. That's running back 11. So that solid actually undersells it. He's been good as a receiver as well. And Mostert now gets an extremely favorable matchup against a Panthers defense whose only answer for David Montgomery was to play poorly enough to get Craig Reynolds in the game. Then I've got the rushing matchup here. The Panthers are dead last in EPA allowed per rush and rushing success rate. They're 31st in run stop win rate. They're 29th in run grade. They are a really bad run defense. Mostert isn't a classic workhorse. He'll be spelled by Jeff Wilson, if active, or another back. But even on a 1A workload, he looks like an RB1 against this defense. While the Panthers' defense is more competent against the pass, they're far from a shutdown unit. Specifically, they've shown a weakness for giving up big plays, and they're going against the most explosive passing offense in the league. Miami should move the ball very efficiently again this week. Then I've got the passing matchup. The Dolphins look awesome across the board. Uh, The Panthers, mediocre to poor in in pass defense. Tua Tagovailoa struggled against the Bills and turned the ball over against the Giants, hurting his efficiency. But he still profiles as an elite quarterback, ranking QB3 in EPA per game and QB2 in success rate. Then I've got the EPA per game chart. He is forming a tier with Josh Allen, um, that you could say is tier two behind Brock Purdy, or you could say they're kind of in tier 1B behind Brock Purdy's 1A because there's a big gap between those top three quarterbacks and everyone else on the chart. The biggest issue for the Dolphins passing game this week is likely to be a lack of pushback from the Panthers, but Tyreek Hill can still crush on limited volume. He's dominating target share and his targets are extremely valuable. Last year, Hill was seeing a ton of targets down the middle of the field. These targets, traveling 10-plus air yards into the middle part of the field, set Hill up for huge yards-after-catch gains. The NFL caught on to McDaniel's plan of attack last year, so he innovated with new motion concepts and play designs. But the end result is the same. Among wide receivers with 75-plus routes, only Brandon Ayuk is seeing a higher rate of downfield middle targets. Totally coincidentally, Among wide receivers with 75-plus routes, only Hill, who's at 4.72 yards per route run, and Ayuk, who's at 4.02, have hit a 3.5-plus yards per route run this season. Then I have a chart comparing Tyreek Hill and Brandon Ayuk. Both profiles are absolutely insanely good. Um, They're very similar, which is kind of the point that I'm making. Both these guys getting a lot of first-read targets, and those first-read targets are often to the deep middle part of the field, and it is leading to very efficient uh, per route profiles and per target profiles. Tyreek Hill has a 13.6 yards per target, Brandon Ayuk 14.5. Both of those will cool off, but I think it's interesting to understand how they got there in the first place. Tyreek Hill is untouchable, but Jalen Waddell is still a strong play. His 2.08 yards per route run is less than half of Hill's, but that says more about Hill's absurd efficiency than Waddle's. Still, Hill's 24% to 13% lead in first read target rate and Hill's 8% to 2.5% lead in downfield middle targets shows that the offense is prioritizing getting Hill the ball with space to create. Waddle is talented enough to still have a big ceiling in this elite offense, but the gap between him and Hill 
looks like part of McDaniel's current plans for the offense. Then I've got a comparison between Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. Kind of interesting to see how different this one is than the comparison to Brandon Ayuk. Waddle's profile is not bad. He's got 2.08 yards per route run. It's largely in line with his target volume. It's just not anywhere near Hills, but you know you can still have a really good profile and not be at Tyreek Hill's level. All right, that'll do it for this free preview. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to check out more of the Week 6 walkthrough, go ahead and head over to legendaryupside.com. Hope to see you over there, and have a great Week 6.